0: In his book, Into the Silence, author Wade Davis paraphrases a commentator writing before the first Everest expedition, asking why, quote, more than 25 million pounds had been exhausted in the quest for the North Pole. 400 men had died and 200 ships had been lost, and still no serious effort on Everest, hardly a farthing spent and not a life lost, end quote. This was Britain in 1912, A nation for whom death in the name of the motherland was seen as glorious, and those who died were heroes of the empire. But by the end of World War I, the British psyche had been dealt a devastating blow. Once the British viewed themselves as the world's mightiest empire, which could do no wrong and could never fail. By 1918, they had won the war, but even victory was a kind of defeat. Millions of young lives had been lost for reasons which seemed important four years previously but were now obscured by the trauma of war. Britain wanted, and needed, to restore its sense of self. There had been other injuries to national pride as well, hinted at in the article quoted previously. The Americans had beaten the British to the North Pole, the Norwegians had beaten them to the South Pole, and through the Northwest Passage. Mount Everest was seen as a kind of third pole, the last great challenge, the only one still available to the British the conquest of which would inspire the nation to rise to its former greatness. Once again, for the sake of the motherland, brave men would set off in search of glory, never to return. My name is Megan. This is Death Zone. Episode two, The Ascent of George Mallory. Welcome and thank you for listening. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the tragedy and heroism of history's most incredible disasters, from the highest mountains to the deepest seas, from ancient ruins to the cutting edge of scientific discovery. If you enjoy this show and you'd like to make a comment, ask a question, or make a correction, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at deathzonepodcast. This is the second episode of a six-part series about the early exploration of Mount Everest, beginning with the first measurements and finishing with George Mallory and Sandy Irvin's doomed attempts to reach the summit in 1924. In this episode, we meet the tragic hero of our story and embark on the first scientific expedition to Mount Everest, where the expectations of an easy victory would crash hard into a wall of ice and rock and from which one man would not return. Now let's begin. In 1919, a year after the armistice, the Royal Geographical Society once again turned towards Everest. The Society made preliminary attempts to gain permission from the Secretary of State for India, but these attempts proved fruitless. Sir Francis Young Husband, the explorer and soldier, had been eager to tackle Everest ever since leading the nineteen o four invasion of Tibet. The mountain was so near, but circumstances had pulled him away. Young Husband spent the next fifteen years waiting for the right opportunity. At last, there were no wars, cold or hot, to interfere with the enterprise. Yet the politicians whose consent he required to mount a large expedition into a sovereign nation continued to drag their heels. Young Husband decided to force the government's hand. He used his influence within the Royal Geographical Society to organize a meeting which would be opened with a speech by John Knoll, the explorer and photographer. All the luminaries of British exploration would be there, including men who, like Young Husband, were dedicated to organizing a mission to Everest. These included Douglas Freshfield, former president of the Royal Geographical Society and former president of the Alpine Club, and Percy Farrer, the current president of the Alpine Club. Also present was Alexander Kellis, the explorer and scientist who had done pioneering research into the effects of oxygen deprivation at high altitudes, research which had proved vital to the fledgling air force during the war. John Knoll's speech was a story of intrigue and adventure. He described a secret excursion into Tibet, in which he had painted himself in blackface to pass as a Muslim—it was 1919, remember—and along with several native companions explored the region around Everest, correcting errors to the current maps and coming within 40 miles of the mountain before being captured by Tibetan soldiers. Knoll finished his speech by declaring that Everest should be climbed as a tribute to General Cecil Rowling, a respected surveyor and Everest enthusiast who had died during the war. When Noel's speech was finished, other speakers followed, each sharing his knowledge and enthusiasm for the Everest expedition that Noel had proposed. The meeting was publicized by the London newspapers, and public interest in the project swelled. Meanwhile, preparations had already begun. The Everest Committee, a joint body representing the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club, organized the expedition. The plan would consist of two phases across two years. The first phase was reconnaissance of the mountain— No westerner had been closer to Everest than 40 miles, and the approaches to the mountain were still unknown. The Royal Geographical Society would send a team to survey and map the area, as well as study the flora, fauna, and geology. The Alpine Club would contribute experienced and knowledgeable climbers, who could determine the most feasible route to the summit. The second phase would take place the following year, when the climbers would return for the actual summit attempt. The entire expedition was to be a strictly British affair. No foreigners, with the exception of the native porters, would participate. The last thing the British wanted was for some Swiss mountaineer to be the first man on the summit. The Everest Committee needed to overcome two obstacles before the expedition could set out. First, they needed to raise funds. Second, the Tibetan government needed to grant permission. To accomplish the first, the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club both solicited subscriptions from their members and patrons. A subscription was basically the crowdsourcing of its day. King George V grandfather of queen elizabeth donated 100 pounds john buchan the newspaper writer and climber aided the effort by stoking public interest through the papers the committee reached deals with the times of london the philadelphia ledger and the illustrated newspaper the graphic these three publications would pay for exclusive access to reports and photographs john Knoll would produce a film about the expedition's second year but the age of the movie deal had not yet come the expedition also received no corporate sponsorship, which is fortunate in retrospect, as many of the geologic features around Everest were as yet unnamed, and might well have come down to posterity as London, Opera Glass Mountain, Acme Motor Peak, Loch Lomond Radium Works Glacier, or Mount Woolworths. The public reaction to the pending expeditions was not unanimously positive, however. The Evening News wrote, quote, They will climb to the peak of Everest and be warm with happiness for a moment at 29,002 feet above the sea. Some instrument in their chilled fingers may prove that the odd two feet should be three feet, and then the explorers shall glow again with thinking what they have wrought for science. But when they shall be safe back at the mountain's foot, they will not be so happy. They will know that they have done a very foolish thing. Some of the last mystery of the world will pass when the last secret place in it, the naked peak of Everest, shall be trodden by those trespassers." Quote. The second obstacle in the road to Everest, the Tibetan government, was more challenging. The Royal Geographical Society sent Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Bury to facilitate the negotiations that would gain the expedition access to Tibet. The committee chose Howard Bury for his experience in the region. Howard Bury, like John Knoll, had made a secret trip to Tibet during the early days of the 1900s when Tibet was off limits to the British. In 1920, Howard Bury found the situation in India more complicated than he hoped. The British in India were negotiating an arms deal with the Tibetans and would not allow the expedition to enter Tibet until an agreement was reached. Howard Bury's greatest concern was that no agreement would be reached and the Tibetans would deny the expedition entry out of spite. Howard Bury relied upon Charles Bell to smooth things over with the Tibetans. Charles Bell was the political officer for India in the region and a sincere admirer of all things Tibetan. He was also personal friends with the Dalai Lama. Bell and the Dalai Lama met during the Dalai Lama's exile in India following the Chinese invasion. Bell wasn't opposed to the expedition in principle, but he knew his own government had acted in bad faith towards the Tibetans more than once, and he felt protective towards his adoptive home. He wanted to ensure the British would deliver upon their promise of weapons to the Tibetans. Bell also emphasized the religious significance of the Carter region east of Everest, where a man described by Bell as a poet saint was buried. This was an 11th century yogi named Milarepa who was still revered by the Tibetans. They would surely take offense at a bunch of white men traipsing through their holy sanctuary, even in the interest of science. Howard Bury first corresponded with Bell by mail, then traveled to Tibet to one of the trademarks established after the Young Husband invasion to meet Bell personally. Howard Bury convinced Bell that he was a man cut from the same cloth. Bell saw that Howard Bury had a sincere appreciation for the land and its people. At last, with some persuasion from Bell, The Dalai Lama authorized the Everest expedition to visit the mountain. The next step was to assemble the team of surveyors and climbers who would undertake the important mission. The Everest committee wanted to send young husband's friend and fellow climber, General Charles Bruce, to lead the expedition. Bruce had been on two previous Himalayan expeditions, to K2 and Nanga Parbat, and he knew the languages and the customs. Unfortunately, his military duties precluded his involvement, and Lieutenant Colonel Howard Burry was chosen instead. Howard Burry wasn't a climber, but he was an able administrator and knew the right people in country. Alexander Kellas would contribute his extensive knowledge of the effects of altitude sickness. Henry Moreshead and Oliver Wheeler would be the expedition surveyors. Morshead had significant experience surveying in the Himalaya and had even discovered a new mountain, Namche Barwa, at the far eastern end of the range. Wheeler was a Canadian and a master of a new technique of using photographs to survey hostile landscapes. They were chosen by Charles Ryder, who had been sent with Cecil Rawling by Francis' young husband to survey Everest more than a decade earlier. Alexander Heron would be the official geologist, and Alexander Wollaston would be the team's medical officer. To lead the climbing team, the team responsible for determining the best route to the summit, the committee chose Howard Rayburn, a once-great climber far past his prime. Now, at long last... George Lee Mallory Esquire enters the story of Everest, the mountain on which he would die three years later and which would be forever graced and haunted by his memory. Mallory was born in 1886 near Manchester, England, to a long line of vicars of the Anglican Church. His father was emotionally distant, his mother was emotionally unstable, but he was a born climber and a natural athlete as well as an exceptionally talented writer. He was sent to boarding school at age 13, where he, like all the boys of his age and class, were taught the gospel of empire. In Into the Silence, Wade Davis describes the British educational model with all its inherent classism and racism, The schools existed to create a cadre for the empire, civil servants to man the distant outposts, officers to lead the armies, politicians to determine the fate of millions of dark-faced subjects of the crown. Education was valued, with more than half of classroom work devoted to the classics, but for the most part, the atmosphere in the schools was fiercely anti-intellectual. Their real purpose was to infuse students with a certain ethos, a blind obedience to those of higher rank, a reflexive inclination to dominate inferiors, and, above all, the cultivated air of superiority so essential to the stability of the empire, end quote. At Winchester College, a teacher named Graham Irving, a member of the Alpine Club, took notice of George Mallory. Took notice of him in more ways than was appropriate, if you know what I mean. He brought Mallory and another young man with him to the Alps, where Mallory first experienced true alpine climbing. His talent was raw and reckless. He belonged among the ice and rocks as he belonged nowhere else, and he climbed with perfect unity of thought and action. His teacher Irving described him as having perfect balance and a completely natural grace, and said that Mallory, quote, found in snow mountains the perfect medium for the expression of his physical and spiritual being, end quote. Mallory returned the next year with Irving and a new friend and climbing partner, a classmate named Guy Bullock. Together, they climbed the dangerous Don Blanche in Switzerland, a mountain north of the Matterhorn, which measures 14,291 feet, or 4,358 meters. Throughout his university years, Mallory continued climbing in Britain and the Alps. One of his more frequent climbing partners, Geoffrey Young, described Mallory's climbing like this, It contradicted all theory. He would set his foot high against any angle of smooth surface, fold his shoulders to his knee, and flow upward and upright again on an impetuous curve. The look, and indeed the result, were always the same, a continuous, undulating movement so rapid and so powerful that one felt the rock must either yield or disintegrate, Young, in fact, might have joined Mallory on Everest had he not lost a leg during the war. Overall, there is a certain sadness to Mallory's early life. He won friends and admirers easily, but they treated Mallory like a beautiful object on which to project their own hopes and desires. Upon graduation, George Mallory began working as a teacher, but he wasn't well-suited to the profession. Whereas today, he might have thrived as the kind of teacher who could inspire students to think in creative ways, this wasn't the kind of teacher the empire wanted in the second decade of the 20th century. In 1914, Mallory met Ruth Turner. The two fell in love quickly and were married before the end of the year. But by then, the world was already starting to spin out of control. Mallory wanted to enlist, although he was now 28 years old and had a child on the way. The master of Charterhouse, the school where Mallory taught, refused to grant him leave. Mallory took that as an affront, but it might have saved his life. Mallory's own brother survived an injury at the front. In 1915, as more bodies were needed to replace the dead, Mallory was allowed to enlist and would eventually serve in an artillery unit, firing shells upon the German line. He fought in the Battle of the Somme in 1916, a battle which resulted in more than a million killed or wounded, yet still managed to accomplish nothing. Mallory survived the battle and the rest of the war, mainly due to a series of fortunate postings and several fortunate accidents that removed him from the fighting. In 1919, Mallory returned to his teaching position, but his heart was no longer in it. Perhaps he felt ashamed to participate in the same system which had fed so many boys into the meat grinder five years earlier. His future was uncertain when, in 1921, he received a letter from the Alpine Club inviting him to participate in the Everest expedition. Mallory was an obvious choice. He was the most skilled climber of his generation to survive. The rest had been lost to the war. The expedition needed one more climber. Alpine Club president Percy Farr chose Australian George Finch, who, like Mallory, had mastered the Alps. He was also an expert in the use of oxygen for climbing and the dangers of altitude sickness, he understood the challenges and dangers the climbers would face on Everest better than anyone. Unfortunately, few supported Farr's choice. He chose Finch for his talent as a climber, but others involved with the expedition saw deficiencies unrelated to talent. Unlike Mallory, Finch was far from the British ideal of a gentleman climber. He was a subject of the crown, but he was a provincial. He had fought for the empire in the war, but he had spent much of his life in Germany. He was outspoken and didn't subscribe to the traditional climbing orthodoxies, and Finch was, to put it bluntly, lover class. Famed modern climber Ed Visters describes a similar incident during the first American expedition to K-2 in 1938. Speaking of climber Paul Petzold, Visters wrote, quote, Petzold was too poor to afford the expedition. Instead, a well-to-do Harvard grad who had climbed with Petzold in the Tetons paid his way. In the perverse logic of the day, that tarred the Wyoming cowboy with a certain unworthiness in the eyes of his league teammates and Petzold's profession as a guide, just as perversely, could be seen as a detriment on an expedition, not an asset, In England, as in New England, money and class sometimes counted for more than talent. Finch was eventually eliminated due to concerns about his health. He had suffered malaria the year before, and the ravages were still apparent. Doctors chosen by the committee rejected him, although Finch would be climbing in the Alps while the expedition was climbing in the Himalaya that same year. To this day, it's not entirely clear whether Finch truly failed his medical exam, or if his failure was a foregone conclusion. Regardless, Mallory still needed a partner, and the man chosen was Guy Bullock, his climbing partner from his old school days, whom Mallory had personally recommended. Mallory traveled to Calcutta by ship, then traveled by train to Darjeeling in western India to rendezvous with the rest of the expedition. Darjeeling is directly south of the border of Sikkim, which had been annexed by the British two decades earlier, resulting in a conflict with the Tibetans. The expedition set out from Darjeeling in mid-May, and from a modern perspective, this is ridiculously poor timing. Most of the year, the summit of Everest is pummeled by the combined winds of the Himalayan subtropical jet stream and the polar front jet stream. The jet stream begins at about 23,000 feet or 7,000 meters above sea level, roughly 6,000 feet lower than the summit of Everest, and can reach 200 miles per hour enough force to blow a climber off the mountain. During a brief period in May, the same time the expedition was leaving India, the polar front jet stream moves north and the subtropical jet stream winds decrease prior to the monsoon season. This is the safest time of the year to climb the mountain, although there may only be a few days when the weather permits a summit attempt. But there are no guarantees. The weather at such altitudes is notoriously fickle, and even a day which dawns with ideal conditions may end with a deadly blizzard. By the time the expedition reached the mountain, they would be on the cusp of the monsoon season. Once the summer monsoon season began, Everest would be buried in snow. Of course, no one in Britain in 1921 understood this, so we can forgive this seeming lapse in judgment. Upon departing, the team immediately split up. The surveyors took a shorter but more difficult route in order to add a few triangles to the Great Trigonometrical Survey's map. The main team's route took them across the jell Law, a mountain pass that straddles the border between Sikkim and Tibet. The mountains form a natural barrier against the Indian pre-monsoon weather, so after climbing out of the dense, wet jungles of Sikkim, the expedition descended into the temperate forests and wildflower meadows of the Chumbi Valley. Beyond the valley, the team climbed higher and higher up the Tibetan Plateau. As the altitude increased, the members of the expedition felt the first effects. By the time the team reached Faridzong, the first of several towns where they would recuperate en route, Alexander Kellis was suffering badly from enteritis and dysentery. His illness weakened him so severely that he required a litter to carry him, but he maintained a cheerful disposition, and refused to show the true extent of his distress. Wollaston, the expedition's medical officer, tried and failed to convince the proud Dr. Kellis to remain in Faridzong. Even Wollaston himself wasn't feeling well, and neither was the surveyor Oliver Wheeler, Fortunately, the expedition had packed lead opium, which is exactly what it sounds like, and that did the trick for Wollaston and Wheeler. Sadly, all the lead opium in the world couldn't help Kellis. He died halfway to Camp Adzong, the team's next destination. Examining him afterwards, Wollaston determined that Kellis had died of a cardiac arrest. It's a grim irony that Dr. Kellis, the world's foremost expert in altitude sickness, died from an unknown side effect of acclimatization. For Westerners, traveling at altitude always brings along an increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and embolism as the body produces more red blood cells to compensate for the lack of oxygen. Meanwhile, Howard Rayburn was showing the same symptoms as Kellis and twice fell off his mule while riding. This time, the expedition leader, Howard Burry, decided to send him back to Sikkim to recuperate at a Christian nunnery, escorted by Dr. Williston. As the march resumed, the two remaining climbers, Mallory and Bullock, got their first meaningful look at Everest. As Mallory wrote to his wife Ruth, describing Everest appearing from the clouds, quote, "Gradually, very gradually, we saw the great mountain sides and glaciers and arêtes, now one fragment, now another through the floating rifts, until far higher in the sky than imagination had dared to suggest, the white summit of Everest appeared. And in this series of partial glimpses we had seen a whole. We were able to piece together the fragments, interpret the dream." However much might remain to be understood, the center had a clear meaning as one mountain shape, the shape of Everest. End quote. In June of nineteen twenty one, the team reached Tingri, the last substantial town on their journey. Tingri would serve as a base of operations as the expedition explored the Everest Massif and its environs. The team was down to seven members, supported by porters. Wheeler, the surveyor, set off with Heron the geologist to study the mountains west of Everest. Wheeler had the most difficult task of all the survey expedition members, as his photographic survey method required climbing multiple peaks and passes to take photographs from as many vantages as possible. This all needed to be done in ideal weather conditions, meaning that if conditions turned harsh, he could do nothing but sit and wait. He was no stranger to mountains, though. He had grown up climbing in the Canadian Rockies and was a skilled technical climber in his own right. Heron, meanwhile, was perplexed by the discovery of marine fossils in the rocks around Everest. Tectonic plate theory was in its infancy in 1921, and no one could have imagined this entire region had once been at the bottom of the ocean. Howard Burry traveled to the east side of Everest. This area was known as Carta. Charles Bell had warned Howard Burry to tread carefully because of the religious significance of the land. Here, Howard Burry made a fortunate discovery, an oasis called the Kama Valley. The valley was protected from the wind by ridges on three sides— it was beautiful and serene compared to the harsh landscape through which he had traveled. It was also holy to the Tibetans, who would not enter without the proper rituals. Howard Burry would later be joined by Heron, the geologist. Morshead, the other surveyor, remained at Tingri to survey the region north of Everest. Dr. Williston remained behind at Tingri as well, to care for two porters who had fallen ill. One of them would not survive. While the other expedition members were engaged in their respective duties, George Mallory and Guy Bullock searched for a viable route to the summit. Before I describe their explorations, I need to establish a few important locations. The route which Mallory would eventually climb towards the summit has three main sections. First, the climbers ascend the North Col, spelled C-O-L. This is a snowy ridge connecting Everest's neighbor Changsie to the north to Everest at the south. The next section is the North Ridge, which connects the North Col at the bottom to the northeast ridge at the top. The last section is the Northeast Ridge, which connects the North Ridge to the summit. North Coal, North Ridge, Northeast Ridge, Summit. The North Coal has two faces, a West Face and an East Face. Below each face is a glacial basin. The basin to the West of the North Coal I will refer to as the Western Coal Basin. The basin to the East of the North Coal I will refer to as the Eastern Coal Basin. Mallory doesn't know it yet. But the Eastern Coal Basin is where he needs to go. There are also three confusingly named glaciers we need to get sorted out: the West Rongbuk Glacier, northwest of Everest; the East Rongbuk Glacier, northeast of Everest; and the just plain Rongbuk Glacier, directly north of Everest. For clarity's sake, I will refer to the Rongbuk Glacier as the Central Rongbuk Glacier in this episode, although that's just my description, not an official name. The central Rongbuk Glacier is the main artery connecting the two other glaciers and leading back north to Tingri, the expedition's headquarters. The west Rongbuk Glacier leads away from Everest and wouldn't factor into the summit attempts to come. The central Rongbuk Glacier and the east Rongbuk Glacier run almost parallel in a north-south direction, with Changsi's north ridge dividing them. The two glaciers connect at a gap in Changsi's ridge. The central Rongbuk Glacier leads to the western Coal Basin, the East Rongbuk Glacier leads to the Eastern Coal Basin. That's the route Mallory needs to find. South down the Central Rongbuk, through the gap, south down the East Rongbuk to the Eastern Coal Basin. If you remember nothing else of Everest's geography, remember this: down the Central Rongbuk Glacier to the East Rongbuk Glacier, then down the East Rongbuk Glacier to the Eastern Coal Basin, then up the North Coal, up the North Ridge up the northeast ridge to the summit. Regrettably, Mallory and Bullock would spend months working this all out, mainly due to two critical mistakes on Mallory's part, which we'll discuss in a few moments. The two men approached the mountain from the north, traveling down the central Rongbuk Glacier towards the north face of Everest, barely noticing a small gap in the ridge. As they approached Everest, it was apparent that the north face was too steep for them to climb, Mallory searched instead for a ridge which could be followed to the summit. He detected two possibilities, the West Ridge and the Northeast Ridge. He determined the Northeast Ridge to be the most feasible. Indeed, the summit would not be reached by the West Ridge until an American team successfully traversed it in 1963. The Northeast Ridge appeared to be relatively easy near the summit, but to reach the Northeast Ridge, the team would first need to climb the steep North Ridge, from his vantage point, Mallory could not see where the North Ridge started, but he deduced, based on the geographic features around him, that a saddle ridge likely connected Everest to Changxi. Si. Two days later, Mallory and Bullock confirmed what Mallory had guessed. By traveling along the Central Rongbuk Glacier, past Changxi's western flank, they found the western coal basin. Unfortunately, the west face of the coal at the head of the Central Rongbuk Glacier appeared treacherous in the extreme. Mallory needed to evaluate the east face of the coal to determine whether that side might be more practical. In fact, Mallory had already found the way, but he didn't realize it. That small gap in Changxi's north ridge they had passed days earlier was the gateway to the East Wrong Book Glacier and to the eastern coal basin. Mallory and Bullock had walked right past it without even realizing its significance. That was mistake number one. Mallory, Bullock, and their Sherpas climbed a 22,000-foot 6,706 meters, peak named Ringri, northwest of Everest, for a better look. From Ringri they could see many of the southwestern features of Everest, including the western Coombe, the Lhotse Face, and the South Coal. He was seeing the route Hillary and Tenzing would take to the summit more than 30 years later. From Ringri, he could also see Changsi's East Ridge, and prematurely assumed that Changsi's East Ridge must block access to the eastern Coal Basin. That was mistake number two. Had Mallory properly explored the gap in Changsi's North Ridge, or had he relied on evidence rather than speculation, he might have solved the puzzle right then and there. He couldn't see the forest for the trees, or the glacier for the mountains, in this case. Mallory and Bullock resumed exploring the western side of the mountain, just in case there might be a better route. From a ridge west of Ringri, they observed the deadly Khumbu icefall, the maze of seracs and crevasses all climbers approaching Everest from the south must navigate. Describing the scene later, Mallory wrote, quote, We have seen this western glacier and are not sorry we have not to go up it, End quote. Either way, that was the Nepal side of the mountain. It was off-limits. Around this time, Mallory began to push the Sherpas harder and higher. He was keen to train the Sherpas to work on ice, but Bullock thought his style reckless, fearing it might get Mallory or the Sherpas killed. It was perhaps a result of Mallory's growing frustration that he drove the Sherpas, and himself, so hard heedless of the danger. In the book The Lost Explorer by Conrad Anker and David Roberts, Roberts describes Mallory's attitude to his Tibetan staff. Acknowledging that Mallory could not have succeeded without the Sherpas, Roberts writes that Mallory's attitude towards them was, quote, a mixture of sympathetic curiosity and the cultural condescension that was endemic in his day. Recognizing the importance of being able to speak the porter's own language, he set himself to learn Tibetan. He shared with them the precious chocolate and nuts he received in the occasional parcel from England that made its way to base camp. Yet, as he watched the porters whom he had taught the basics of icecraft apply their lessons for the first time, he wryly concluded it was not a convincing spectacle, Although Mallory would be described as a racist in the modern sense, for his time he was no more racist than anyone else. That doesn't excuse his attitude towards Tibet or its people, but historical figures need to be understood in their own context. Unfortunately, Mallory's attitude towards Tibetans lingers. Too often, modern Sherpas are treated as simple and stoic, good-natured servants who are the first ones risked in a dangerous situation and the first ones blamed when something goes wrong. Their courage and loyalty are taken for granted. Mountaineering culture appears to be becoming more progressive in the 21st century, however, with more emphasis on treating the Sherpas with the same respect as Western climbers. In fact, in January 2021, an all-Sherpa climbing team made the first successful winter ascent of K2, a feat unrivaled in mountaineering. Mallory and Bullock, having gone as far south on Everest's western side as they could, traveled back up the central Rongbuk Glacier to rendezvous with the rest of the expedition. Mallory and Bullock circled around to the Carter District and the Kama Valley. By this point, they had walked a nearly complete circuit around the East Rongbuk Glacier without realizing its significance. Mallory's errors can be forgiven, though. He and Bullock did not have drones, satellites, and helicopters at their disposal. The infrastructure, which would make a flight around Everest possible, did not yet exist in Tibet. The only information they had about the landscape of the mountain came from locals who knew Everest only from the ground-level perspective of traders and travelers. In Carta, the expedition established a new base camp. Heron continued his geological search. Dr. Williston continued his research into the flora and fauna, although he was frustrated by the Tibetan taboo against harming creatures in the Sacred Valley. I'd like to pause for a moment to talk about the religion of Tibet. The predominant religion of the Tibetans and the Sherpas, as well as other groups in the Himalaya, is the form of Buddhism typically referred to as Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhist teachings introduced from India were influenced by the pre-Buddhist bone religion native to the region, giving the practice of Buddhism in the region a unique character. Reverence for the Buddha exists harmoniously with a reverence for nature spirits and deities. Chamalongma herself is seen as sacred. According to tradition, a Buddhist sage named Padmum Sumbhava, or Guru Rinpoche in Tibetan, brought Vajrayana Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century. He is revered as a bodhisattva, a sage who achieved enlightenment, yet remains behind to guide others along the path. A bodhisattva is somewhere between a saint and a demigod, if we were to attempt to apply Western terms. The holy wisdom of Guru Rinpoche infuses the entire landscape around Everest with mystical properties, and his intercession can keep the angry spirits who dwell in the mountains at bay. Practically speaking, priests called lamas are responsible for the rituals and prayers which are an integral part of Tibetan Buddhism. In the 1920s, the lamas were also responsible for the temporal administration of Tibet. The highest lama is called the Dalai Lama, at the time of the first expedition, Tibet was ruled by the 13th Dalai Lama, the immediate predecessor of the current Dalai Lama. The sacred Kama Valley proved to be an immensely comfortable location for a base camp. While the team was establishing itself in its new location, surveyor Henry had rejoined the expedition after finishing his survey around Tingri. By now, only Wheeler remained on his own, surveying the central Rongbuk glacier with the aid of his Sherpas. Mallory and Bullock explored the ridges east of the mountain, still trying to find a way to the eastern Coal Basin. To Mallory's way of thinking, the eastern Coal Basin must empty out somewhere. He assumed, incorrectly, that it didn't empty to the north, therefore it must empty to the east. As July turned into August, Mallory became ill. After months at altitude, the effects caught up with him. Bullock explored the Carter Ridges without him. As he did, he grasped what Mallory had failed to. He could see it was impossible that the eastern Coal Basin should empty further east. It must empty to the north. Mallory thought the way north was blocked, but he didn't really know. Bullock knew the way east was blocked. It was not Bullock, however, who would provide the missing piece of the puzzle. It was Oliver Wheeler, working on his own with his native team, surveying the lands around the central Rongbuk Glacier, who discovered the east Rongbuk Glacier and understood the importance of the gap connecting the central Rongbuk to the east Wrongbook. But Mallory wasn't convinced he was wrong. He hadn't seen what Bullock had seen. He had a hand-drawn map from Wheeler, but dismissed his findings. There may have been a personal element as well. For whatever reason, Mallory did not like Canadians. Mallory had disliked him from day one, and it wasn't about to give him credit for finding what he had missed. Wheeler rejoined the expedition in Carta at the end of August, and Mallory could no longer refute Wheeler's claim about the approach to the eastern Coal Basin via the East Wrongbook Glacier. Regardless, they were on the wrong side of the East Rongbuk Glacier now, and there wasn't time to reset for a different approach. They would have to climb the Loch Pala, the high pass between the Karta Glacier and the East Rongbuk Glacier. The weather turned foul, and the climbers were obliged to wait until late September. As they waited, Howard Rayburn, the nominal leader of the climbing team, miraculously reappeared. He had recovered at the nunnery in Sakim, then traveled all the way to Everest to rejoin the group. He was no longer at death's door, but he would be useless at this late stage. The expedition planned to ascend to the top of the Loch Bala, then descend to the other side to the East Rong Book Glacier, and then along the glacier's lateral moraine to the eastern Coal Basin. The pass topped out at 6,706 meters, an extremely high altitude for men like Howard Burry and Dr. Williston, who had never been so high. The pass was also more treacherous than first anticipated, especially after the monsoon snow. The journey over the pass would need to be accomplished over the course of several days with porters hauling heavy gear up and down. At the end of the first day, Mallory stood at the top of the Bala and looked down upon the east face of the North Pole. It didn't appear as dangerous as the west face, but it wasn't an easy slope either. It was a steep wall of snow which became a vertical wall of ice near the top. Mallory was deeply disappointed. Howard Bury, Mooreshead, and Dr. Williston eventually made it to the top of the pass, but it was obvious they were not experienced enough to attempt the North Pole. The climbing team would consist of Mallory, Bullock, and Wheeler. They would be accompanied by 10 Sherpas who had proven to be particularly adept working on ice. But there was one more curious incident before the team separated. Howard Bury noticed a large animal footprint in the snow. He asked the Tibetans what might have made it. They answered, Metokangmi in their language, the abominable snowman. Actually, it really translates to man-bear snowman, but a mistranslation here and a little creative license there would give us our term for Bigfoot's Himalayan counterpart. The journey down the pass and along the East Rongbuk Glacier was exceedingly difficult, and the winds were so fierce that sleep was impossible the first night on the glacier. The next morning, seven of the ten Sherpas were too ill or exhausted to work. Only three Sherpas, Goring, Lage, and Ang Pasang, who had been trained by Wheeler and assisted him in his surveys, continued on with the climbers. The Sherpas led the way, breaking the trail through the snow to conserve the climbers' energy. When they reached the base of the wall, Mallory took the lead. As he led the team up the treacherous face of the North Coal, he could see the North Ridge of Everest more clearly than ever. To his great relief, the North Ridge appeared easier than he had expected. It was steep, but not particularly hazardous or challenging from the look of it. He was beginning to hope that a serious attempt on the summit might be made after all. When the climbers reached the lower of the two shelves at the top of the north coal, they at last felt the wrath of the wind which blew through the gap between Everest and Changsee. It deafened them with its roar and blinded them with cyclones of snow. Huddled down, hiding behind the upper shelf of the coal, the men deliberated. Of the six, only Mallory wanted to continue. Wade Davis writes in Into the Silence quote, Transfixed by the mountain, Mallory appeared oblivious to the fierce gusts that still swept over them despite the modest protection of the wall. Ice formed in his hair and frosted his eyelashes. His eyes seemed as if to settle in another realm. In truth, Mallory was tempted to go on, even alone. End quote. Mallory knew it was impossible, but he wouldn't stop. He ascended to the upper shelf of the coal. Wheeler and Bullock followed, while the Sherpas wisely remained behind. Above the meager protection offered by the leeward shelf, the men experienced the full fury of Everest's deadly gale-force winds, to continue meant certain death. The men finally elected to retreat down the face of the coal to the eastern coal basin, and immediately discovered that an avalanche had destroyed the route by which they had come. They hadn't heard it over the cacophony of the wind Nevertheless, all six men returned safely to camp in the relative tranquility of the basin. Wheeler had suffered the worst during the climb. Both feet were badly frostbitten. It was Mallory, the Canadian hater, who warmed Wheeler's frozen feet and likely saved his life in the process. Their climb to the top of the North Coal would be the only attempt to climb Everest itself that year, but the next season's attempt was beginning to take shape. The team knew when to climb, where to start, and which route to take, In a year's time, the second expedition would be ready for the assault on Everest. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Join me again next time as the second expedition returns to Everest, determined to reach the summit, and instead learns the true human cost of challenging Chomalangma. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or corrections, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com. Or follow me on Instagram at DeathzonePodcast. Thanks for listening.